Hello and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we hike back through time, almost quite literally. We start in an area that has rock a few hundred million years old but then descend through varied layers of color and rock, down and down until we reach bedrock almost 2 billion years old, where we find the majestic Colorado River. There we'll spend the night in a beautiful cottonwood grove along a creek, feeding into the Colorado, before ascending the canyon over the next two days. Yep, that's right. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we go to the Grand Canyon in Arizona. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me. If you have ideas for future episodes, don't hesitate to reach out at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. Let's start with Walking the Walk. Listener and former guest Allison Richter, if you recall, Allison was our guest on episode 26 about the Zion Traverse. Allison, as she told us on that episode, was planning to hike the Tour de Mont Blanc this summer, and she did that. Allison reports that the hike was incredible. She said it was the hardest hiking she's ever done in terms of elevation, gain, and loss, but it was also the most beautiful scenery that she'd ever experienced. One thought she had for those considering this trail is to embrace the rain. She said they had one day with so much rain it was running down like a new stream, and that there was hail, and everyone just commented to each other, can you believe this? And at some point, they reminded each other that they had paid to do this. Having said that, the weather changes fast in the Alps and rain can move through very quickly. So it was just something she said to be aware of. She reports that her hiking poles definitely saved her knees. And for me, that's also something I definitely take on longer treks. She said to always take the opportunity to buy bread and cheese. That's additional good advice for hiking in Europe. And she said for lunches, the best option is to buy the to-go lunches from the refuges so that you have a lunch. You buy those in the morning when you leave the refuge. Usually you have to order them the night before uh, so that they're ready for you in the morning. And then you have a convenient way to have lunch along the trail during the day. And she also said, take all the pictures you possibly can, because when you get home, you'll wish you had more. So great to hear that Allison had an amazing experience that she thought was well worth the travel planning and time to do. There you have it. Listener Allison Richter was inspired by the Tour de Mont Blanc episode, which is episode 22, to hike the Tour de Mont Blanc, and she went out and did it. So congrats to Allison on a great hike. So let's go to answering the inbox. This is a segment that I'll do from time to time. I think I've done it once before. If there is a listener question that I think would be good for everyone to hear the answer to, I'll uh, relay that answer to you on the show. Listener Neha Zop, I hope I'm pronouncing that close to correctly at least, of the San Francisco Bay Area. Neha asked about whether nearby there are trips she can do that feel luxurious so that her husband will join her. And what she means by luxurious is trips that have good accommodations and possibly even baggage service like the Kamano Kodo or the Mont Blanc trips have. And she wanted to know about that. So I think the answer is yes, there are some trips that you can do in the United States that are not outright camping, but certainly less than in other parts of the world. And she said nearby, which, you know, she's living here in the Bay Area. And so she may mean in the West. So I'll, I'll talk about some options there. But I think it might be good to talk about this issue more generally in the United States, because it is true that the United States has much less in terms of options for luxurious backpacking than in other parts of the world where camping is less common. So toward the end of this episode, I will answer Neha's question. All right, let's talk about the Grand Canyon. I visited the Grand Canyon once when I was a kid, but 
like a lot of people who visit the Grand Canyon for a day, all I did was essentially look over the edge. As impressive as that is, it's a little different to go backpacking in the Grand Canyon. I visited the canyon once as an adult prior to this trip that we're going to be talking about. But at the time, my daughter was only one years old. And again, we really just stopped briefly, looked over the edge, were wowed and amazed by the view, and then moved on as part of a much bigger trip. And so really looking over the rim is not the same as going to the bottom. And I love desert hikes. I love the exotic environment of the Southwest of the United States uh, that really puts everything to its limits in terms of weather and, and climate conditions and, and how life can survive in this climate, both plant life and animal life. So it's a really fascinating terrain for me. And I always wanted to come back and spend more time at the Grand Canyon and hike into the canyon. And I finally did it. And that is this episode. If you are interested in desert hikes, in addition to this episode, there's episode five on the Joshua Tree National Park hike that Tony Wong and I did. And that's about the California riding and hiking trail that goes through Joshua Tree National Park. And there's also episode 26, as I mentioned, where Allison Richter was a guest and we talked about the Zion Traverse across Zion National Park. So those are both great episodes if you are interested in desert hikes as well as this episode. So then the question is, once you decide you want to go do a hike in the Grand Canyon, how do you do it? Well, you have to apply for a permit. And I applied for a permit several times and never got one. But then I figured out the secret to being able to do the hike anyway, which I will share with you on this episode. So stand by. But before we talk about permitting, let's go back in time, way back in time, and talk about the geologic history of the Grand Canyon. Because to talk about the Grand Canyon, you have to start with the geology. When I think of the Grand Canyon, the first questions that come to mind are, how did it get there and when did it happen? So let's start with the how. Since about 65 million years ago, the entire Rocky Mountain area and the Colorado Plateau that these Western desert states are in has been rising. And the plateau today is a pretty high elevation plateau. The rim of the Grand Canyon is between roughly close to 7,000 feet up and 8,000 feet up, depending on where you are, on which side of the canyon you're on. But in any event, it's not anywhere near sea level. And this plateau has been rising for quite a long time. But if you jump even further back in time to about 2 billion years ago, this area began at that time as shallow seas, and then swamps and rivers, and all of this action of ocean, swamp, and river deposited sediments, deposited sand, essentially, uh, over time that started to form layers. Eventually, you had a high plateau with the Colorado River flowing across the plateau and starting to cut into it. Unlike the glacier activity that formed a canyon like Yosemite Valley, which we talked about in episode 18, the Grand Canyon was not formed by glaciers. It was formed primarily by the action of water itself, and then later shaped by erosion. The canyon as we know it today is actually very young in geologic terms. The river has only been carving the canyon for about 6 million years. Today, the canyon is over a mile deep at some points, more than 5,000 feet deep or 1,500 meters, and is at an elevation of between 2,000 to 8,000 feet above sea level, so between 600 and 2,400 meters. As I mentioned, the North Rim is a bit higher up, so the North Rim can be colder. It has longer canyons on the north side because it's starting from a higher elevation and the whole plateau slopes toward the south. That tends to form longer, less uh, steep drop-off type of canyons on the north side. And there are steeper and shorter canyons on the south side. The canyon itself is 277 miles long, or about 445 kilometers. When you're at the visitor center on the south rim and you look across the canyon, it's about 10 miles across, or 16 kilometers. 
but at points it can be up to 18 miles across, which is about 29 kilometers. Even though the canyon itself is relatively young, the rock that it reveals is not. The kaibab layer at the top of the canyon, which is a somewhat light, tan-colored, sandy-looking rock, is about 250 million years old. So to be clear about this, this is the youngest rock at the top of the Grand Canyon. And you might recall from episode 26 about the Zion Traverse that this youngest rock in the Grand Canyon is actually about the age of the oldest rock in Zion. Now, this is because rock gets younger as you go north along the Colorado Plateau. This is what's called the Grand Staircase, where each step of the staircase is a more recent phenomena, or it's of more recent vintage as far as the rock goes. So the top several layers of rock in the Grand Canyon are Paleozoic era rock formed from about 540 million years ago to about 250 million years ago. And they contain marine fossils that help show the early seabed history of the canyon. After the Kaibab formation, there's the Toro Wayup formation, the Coco Nino sandstone, Hermit formation, Supai group, and Redwall limestone. And that Redwall limestone gives the canyon some of its most intense colors. And as I learned from hiking in the canyon, it's not just uh, intense colors from afar. It really is that red as you hike by it. So these layers that I'm talking about are flat layers of sandstone and shale and limestone and are all Paleozoic sedimentary rock. So all layers that have settled one after another over time. And as I said, you can see each layer very clearly as you hike down into the canyon. You really do feel like you're hiking back in time. Below that are several tilted layers. You can see when you look at those layers as you're hiking by them how they are tilted upward at an angle. And these are called the Grand Canyon Supergroup. They were formed about a billion years ago and are sandstone and shale. And then at the canyon bottom is what's called Vishnu basement rocks, which are up to 1.84 billion years old. So almost 2 billion years old. And this is schist and granite and gneiss. And this is the bedrock, the igneous and metamorphic rock that was formed under the surface uh, as molten rock originally and has only been revealed by the river's action over the last 6 million years. So when you hike from the rim to the bottom of the canyon, you really are hiking back in time. One interesting fact to help put this in perspective is that there are no dinosaur bones in the Grand Canyon. Now, why is that? The age of dinosaurs was from about 245 million years ago to 66 million years ago. The Kaibab layer at the top of the canyon, which is the youngest rock at the canyon, is 252 million years old. So the youngest layer at the top of the canyon is still older than the age of dinosaurs. As I said, there are plenty of fossils you can find, but those fossils are of much older life, including reptiles and sea life, and other things that existed long before dinosaurs. As I mentioned, if you go north on the staircase, so to speak, through the southwest of the United States, for example, all the way to Dinosaur National Monument near the Utah-Colorado border and the northern parts of those states, those areas are rich with dinosaur fossils, but that's because the rock is much younger. As far as current flora and fauna, it's a rich and varied flora and fauna in the Grand Canyon. The first thing you see everywhere when you arrive at the canyon is elk, which, if you haven't seen them, are a very large deer. They hang around the developed areas and Mather Campground, the main campground in particular, and they're very accustomed to park visitors, so you will definitely get an up-close view of the elk if you come to the Grand Canyon. There's also bats, jackrabbit, desert cottontail, squirrels, mice, skunks, badger, fox, porcupine, mountain lion, coyote. We definitely heard some coyotes howling in the evening and in the early morning. There's also bobcat, pronghorn antelope, deer, bighorn sheep, and black bear. There are several types of snakes, including king snake, garter snake, and gopher snakes, which are all harmless. But there is also the poisonous Grand Canyon rattlesnake. There are lots of lizards, there's salamander, there's toad, and there's frogs. The area has a wide variety of birds, including condors, 
hawks, eagles, and owls, plus woodpeckers and smaller songbirds of various kinds. The ravens in the area are particularly a nuisance in the campground. But the prize for the most dangerous animal in the park goes to... What do you think it is? You're probably not right. It's the rock squirrel. That's right. They are really aggressive in trying to get your food, and they bite dozens of people every year who try to feed them, which is a no-no, so don't do it. The rims of the canyon are forests of pinyon pine and juniper and ponderosa and even some Douglas fir. At the canyon floor, there's cottonwood trees lining the streams. Throughout, there's lots of wildflowers, such as lupin and monkey flower and primrose. One thing to keep in mind is that the ecosystems of the canyon change drastically from the top of the canyon to the bottom. The canyon floor is desert and has prickly pear cactus and choya and hedgehog cactus, yucca and agave. If you accidentally back into a choya, you won't forget the experience. I had a friend do that once. And I hope you have a pair of pliers on a multi-tool to get the needles out. The middle levels of the canyon, like on the Tonto Plateau, are predominantly sagebrush. I got a lot of this information from the Field Guide to the Grand Canyon, which is a folding laminated pocket guide that my wife Andy and I bought at the park and took with us on the trail, which is a handy thing to have if you're interested in these things. So let's talk a bit about the human history in the area. There is some evidence of nomadic tribes going back as far as 10,000 years in the area. But the first evidence of year-round inhabitants in the area is from about 4,000 years ago. And that is based on some interesting figurines that were found in caves. We know a little more, though, about the peoples who were there about 200 BC, which were the Puebloan Anasazi people. That's what we call them now. It's not what they called themselves. The Anasazi is a name, as I understand it, that more recent peoples gave to the peoples before them when they found evidence of them. And so it's a word that came much later. Those people migrated to the area, as I said, maybe in around 200 BC. By about 500 AD, they had built adobe houses along the rim of the canyon. And they lived there for a long time, all the way until about 1500 AD. Nobody is sure why they left. There are two leading theories. One is that a significant drought hit the area. And the other theory is, is that there was conflict with other peoples in the area. But ultimately, the Havasupai and Hualapai people moved into the area. And both still live on reservations in the area. And the tourist industry is important to both of them. The Havasupai have Havasupai Falls, which is a famous series of waterfalls. And they are in charge of the area where there's a famous backpacking trip into see those falls that goes into the canyon. And I hope to cover the Havasupai Falls trip on a future episode eventually. They actually have Supai Village, which is a, a settlement within the canyon, which is considered the most remote village in the United States. The Hualapai have built the famous Skywalk, where you can walk out over the rim and look down at the canyon through a glass bottom. Things weren't always so peaceful with the Hualapai. They fought the U.S. for three years in a war in the mid-19th century, which ultimately uh, didn't end well for them. But uh, today, both of these peoples, the Hualapai and the Havasupai, live in the area on significant reservations and, as I mentioned, have uh, a big role in the tourist industry. As far as the modern history of Europeans coming to the area, like in much of the American West, the story starts with the Spanish. In 1540, Garcia Lopez de Cardenas was on a mission to find the seven cities of Cibola, a mythical place they heard about from shipwreck survivors who claimed to have heard about it from natives of the area. And it was supposed to be a series of cities that had limitless riches. Now, it's an interesting story, and it sounds a lot like the El Dorado uh, story about the cities of gold or the Fountain of Youth story. And a lot of these stories, I think, at least one theory, is that natives would tell them to European explorers who arrived as a way to lure them away from the current place they were in and send them on to somebody else's community. It was sort of a way of saying, look, we don't have anything you really want. 
So why don't you go over there a hundred miles or so where you'll find something much better. And then it seems like every time they went to the next place, they heard a story about something even further away and so on. And ultimately, most of these stories turned out to not be true. In any event, the conquistador Francisco Vázquez de Coronado sent an expedition north to find the Colorado River. I'm not sure exactly why he thought the Colorado River was something he needed to find. I'm not positive from the story whether it was because the cities were supposed to be connected to it somehow or whether it was to meet up with other explorers that he was trying to find who were using the river as a means of transportation. I think I heard something to that effect, but I'm not positive. In any event, he sent this party north and they found the river all right with the help of Hopi guides. And they found it, though, from the south rim of the canyon. But they couldn't make it down to the river because there wasn't enough water on the route down. So they were getting too dehydrated. And they never made it down to the river, even though they saw it. And I thought this is an interesting story because I saw a deer do a similar thing when we were on the Tonto Plateau. Andy and I were looking into the inner canyon from the middle canyon on the Tonto Plateau. And a deer walked to the edge and looked over and then looked back and forth, realizing that the river below was beyond her reach. And then she left, never once seeming to be that impressed by the view. And so I think about that when I think about the party of Cardenas, who arrived to look for the river and saw the impressive view, but ultimately couldn't reach what they came for, and probably didn't think much of the view in comparison to the fact that they couldn't get to their objective. After Cardenas, for a long time, no Europeans saw the canyon. In fact, it wasn't for over another 200 years that any Europeans saw the Grand Canyon. On a side note, unrelated to his canyon adventure, Cardenas was later prosecuted for war crimes. So maybe he had other concerns besides beautiful vistas, I don't know. When Europeans finally did return to the canyon, it was the Spanish again. This time it was two priests and Spanish soldiers looking for a route from the north to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And they came up against the North Rim and eventually found a crossing at what today is Lake Powell, Utah. But they basically had to follow the entire North Rim of the canyon to a point where they could finally get around the canyon. And again, one wonders what these early Spanish explorers felt when they saw the canyon. Did they, as priests and religious men, come upon it and not just think of it as an inconvenience to their trek to Santa Fe and instead think of the awe they felt in front of God's creation? Or were they, again, seeing it merely as an obstacle? Or maybe it was a little of both. Who knows? Americans found the canyon as early as 1826 and Mormon settlers as early as the 1850s. But let's skip ahead to the most famous American explorer of the canyon, who is John Wesley Powell. Powell was a soldier, a geologist, and an explorer. And later, after his adventures in the canyon, he became a professor and fairly senior government official. In 1869, Powell set off with 10 men, four boats, and food for 10 months. And they set out from Green River, Wyoming, with the goal of going through the entire Grand Canyon. Early in the trip, they lost a boat with a significant amount of food and supplies in it, which caused some problems for them. Later, three men left the trip because they got to what they thought were impassable rapids. And these three thought that it was a safer idea to try to walk around this area, and they weren't willing to go down those rapids in the boats. And ironically, they ended up being murdered. And it's not clear whether it was by natives in the area or Mormons. Nobody knows which. In either case, it seems to have been a case of mistaken identity where they were thought to have had ill motives or it wasn't clear why they were in the area and they were killed. And ironically, the rest of the expedition made it safely through the canyon and through all the difficult rapids. So Powell was ultimately successful in traversing the entire canyon by water on the Colorado River. In 1871, Powell was the first to use the term the Grand Canyon. Before that, it had been called Big Canyon, which doesn't quite have the same ring to it, does it? In 1903, Teddy Roosevelt first visited the canyon, which inspired him in 1906 to give it some protection as a game preserve. 
You may recall that Roosevelt was quite a hunter, and so that would have been his first instinct as a way to protect the area. But in 1908, Roosevelt made a national monument, and in 1919, President Woodrow Wilson signed a bill to make the Grand Canyon a national park. The route of this particular hike has its own interesting story. Andy and I hiked down the South Kaibab Trail and then back up the Bright Angel Trail to get out of the canyon. And this is a very popular way to hike the Grand Canyon. The Bright Angel Fault is one of the major fault lines bisecting the canyon. And so for centuries, this side canyon where the Bright Angel Trail is has been a natural place that allowed humans and animals access to the Grand Canyon. Early hunter-gatherers used the route to follow game that used the route Uh, There are even pictographs still in the area memorializing their hunts in that side canyon where the Bright Angel Trail is. The Havasupai later made a more definite path down the Bright Angel area, and the Havasupai even maintained crops at Indian Gardens, which is an area where a creek goes through this part of the canyon, and they stayed in nearby caves for shelter. And Indian Gardens today is one of the campsites below the rim, And it's where Andy and I stayed on the second night of our hike so that we could break the uphill into two days of hiking instead of one. And so there'll be more on that later. In the late 1880s, there were three guys, including a guy named Ralph Cameron, who spent $500 to improve the Bright Angel Trail. They were trying to make it easier to reach mining sites in the canyon. And then shortly after, Cameron acquired the rights from the others that he was working with, the other two guys, and he created what was called the Bright Angel Toll Road. What Cameron saw is that the real money, the real gold mine, as it were, was from tourism. The Santa Fe Railroad was being built, and Cameron saw to it that they went directly to the trailhead. And if you've been to the Grand Canyon today, you know that's where the trail comes up. It comes up right where the train stops in the Grand Canyon. So Cameron was successful in having the Santa Fe Railroad run their line directly to his trailhead. Cameron improved the trail so that it went all the way to the river, before I think it had gone just down to certain mining sites. He also established the camping area at Indian Gardens, which is, as I said, the same location where there is a modern campground. In 1903, Cameron started charging a dollar for people to use the trail, and then he would sell them water to drink along the way. He also got involved in on the legal and political side of things to try to protect his business. He lobbied for a law that allowed him better control over the toll road. And that law passed, but the governor vetoed it. But then Cameron had enough support to override the governor's veto. Cameron later became a territorial representative, which meant that he was like a congressman because Arizona was not yet a state. And then later, once Arizona became a state, he became one of its U.S. senators. So a guy who was very active politically and in business. The Park Service took over in 1919 when it became a national park. And the Park Service tried for years to get control of the trail, but Cameron didn't cede control of it until 1928, almost a decade later. But by that point, the Park Service had already implemented another solution to the problem they had with Cameron controlling access to the canyon. And that other solution is the South Kaibab Trail, which is the trail that starts at Yaki Point that Andy and I took down to the bottom of the canyon our first day of the hike. That trail was built by the Park Service between December 1924 and June 1925. The trail is very steep. It drops 5,000 feet in under seven miles. It was deliberately built with exposure to the sun to prevent ice accumulating during the winter and spring. But as you might imagine, this makes it exposed to heat in the summer. There's no water along the South Kaibab Trail because it wasn't built for miners who had needs to stay on it. It was built as a recreation trail. So where does that leave things? Today, that leaves us with a short, steep, but wide and well-graded trail to take to the bottom that was built by the Park Service. That's the South Kaibab Trail. And a longer historical trail the Bright Angel Trail, that has good access to water and has a convenient midway camping point that you can hike back up the canyon. There's a convenient park shuttle 
between the two trailheads that makes the trip easy, where you can park your car over in the backcountry office parking lot, which is close to the Bright Angel trailhead, and then take the shuttle bus over to Yaki Point to start your hike on the South Kaibab Trail. I should note that the Park Service also built the North Kaibab Trail, which goes from the North Rim all the way down Bright Angel Creek to the Colorado. And that makes the uh, rim-to-rim hike within the Grand Canyon possible. That's another option that's very famous within the park that we're not going to talk about on this episode, but maybe on a future episode we will. So on this program, I often ask, why do this hike? Why would you decide that this is a hike you want to do? And for each episode, I like to have a good answer so that it makes it worth it to do the episode. But it feels a little silly to ask the question here. You do want to go to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, don't you? It's like climbing a famous peak in reverse. You kind of do it because it's there and because it's beautiful and the geology. And if you need a reason to hike the Grand Canyon, I can't help you. All right. So assuming you do want to hike the Grand Canyon, because who doesn't? Let's talk about logistics for doing this hike. The first question is always when to do it. What time of year? And the obvious answer to that is don't hike this in the summer. A lot of people, that's when they have time to go hiking, but this is not the place to be hiking in the summer because of the heat. As I mentioned earlier, there's quite a difference in temperature between the top and the bottom. And in the summer at the bottom, the heat would be absolutely brutal. So you don't want to hike this in the summer. In the middle of the winter, there are also some other serious concerns. There's quite a bit of ice that can be on the trails and you would need to have crampons and the right equipment to be able to hike during a time when there's parts of the trail that might be frozen. Spring and fall are the best times to hike. Andy and I went in early April, and that was a perfect time to go. It was late enough that there was no more slippery ice at the top of the trail, and it was early enough that the temperatures on the canyon floor were in the 80s Fahrenheit, so 25 to 30 Celsius. And the canyon rim was in the 60s Fahrenheit, So somewhere in the range of 15 to 20 degrees Celsius. So note that difference. The difference in temperature between the top to the bottom was at least 20 degrees, sometimes more. So keep that in mind when doing this hike or when planning for doing this hike. All right, now we get to one of the parts that you've been waiting for of this episode, which is permits. And although permits are usually a dry topic, here it is quite an important one. And the question is, how can you two hike the Grand Canyon? The obvious first step is to try to get them in advance through the official online system. And so you can check online to find out the details, but I believe it's something like more than four months in advance, they open up one month at a time of permits. So let's do an example to figure out what that means. If you wanted to hike in the month of April, you have to apply between November 20th to December 1st. So you've got basically a 10-day window to fill out an application, which you then have to fax or mail or deliver in person probably not going to deliver it in person, but you actually have to fax it or mail it. Otherwise, they don't have an online system. And I imagine that's to discourage people from applying because they get so many applications. You can, on the application, put in alternative dates and alternative itineraries for different trips you might be willing to do. And that's supposed to help you improve your chances. But I can tell you that I applied uh, multiple years to get permits and tried lots of different itineraries and alternative dates, different days of the week, for example, and never did get a permit. But if you get a permit, great, you're in business. You're off to the Grand Canyon, and you don't need my help. But now I'm going to tell you how to hike the Grand Canyon, even if you can't get a permit in advance. So if you take nothing else away from this episode, pay attention to this part. So first, you have to set aside a week. Wait, a week for a two-night backpacking trip? Well, do you want to hike the Grand Canyon or not? So stay with me on this. You'll see it's worth it. Whatever day you plan to get there, set aside accommodations for at least the first three nights, but maybe the first four nights to ensure that you have enough time for this. So we drove from the San Francisco Bay Area on a Saturday morning, and we stayed in Laughlin, Nevada, one night at a casino. So this meant we needed four nights of accommodations starting on night two, on Sunday night. And we had reserved a campsite at Mather Campground, the main campground on the south rim of the park. 
And there was plenty of room a couple months before to make reservations. And when we got there, there was even a bit of room in the campground. There were quite a few campers, but there were sites available. Because we drove and could bring all of our car camping gear in addition to our backpacking gear, this was a great option for us. But even if you're flying to get there, if you have backpacking gear, that's still a viable option for you to stay in the campground. There are also lots of lodges and other types of accommodations in and near the park. So if you'd rather stay in a hotel, you can do that. All right. So you've gotten yourself to the Grand Canyon. You have reservations for three nights, but preferably four nights of some kind or another. And the first thing you do when you arrive at the park is you go straight to the backcountry office, which, as I mentioned, is close to where the Bright Angel Trailhead is. And you put your name on the waiting list for a backpacking permit. You will get a waitlist number, which is a little paper card with a number on it. Not the most high-tech system, but it works. So, as I mentioned, we started our drive on a Saturday. We arrive midday on Sunday, and we got number eight. Okay, what does that mean? What that means is you come back the next morning before 8 a.m. And don't be late. Be there at 8 a.m. They will skip right over you if you're not there. So you come at 8 a.m. or just before 8 a.m. And they start calling waitlist numbers from number one. And if there are spots available in the canyon to go hiking, those people get off the waitlist. You will likely not get a spot that first day, which is actually your second day there, right? The first morning that you have a number. Instead, you will move down the wait list. So as I said, we arrive on Sunday, we get our number eight, we show up the next day, at the end of them giving out waitlist permits, we ended up with a new number, which was number three. Then you repeat the process and you come back the next day. The next day when we came back, so now we're on to Tuesday, I believe, number two didn't show up. So number one got their permit and then we were called next because they skipped right over number two who didn't show up on time or didn't plan to show up. So another reminder to show up on time at eight o'clock in the morning. So then you go up there and you get your permit and you pick available campsites and you make your reservation and pay your fee and you get a permit for the following day. What we got was a permit for camping at Bright Angel Campground Wednesday night and at Indian Gardens on the way back up the canyon Thursday night. So if you're keeping score on all this, this means we are starting our hike on a Wednesday. We drove out there on Saturday. We arrived Sunday and got on the wait list. The second day, we moved down the wait list on Monday. And the third day on Tuesday, we got a permit for a Wednesday start, which would have us finishing the hike on Friday, driving a good chunk of the way home Friday, and the rest of the way home Saturday. And so there you have it. No permit, Grand Canyon backpacking trip, on a one-week time frame. If you have more time or you want to do a different hike than the hike I'm going to talk about on this episode, you can plan alternatives and talk to the rangers. And you can even talk to the rangers, not just when you get up there to get your permit, but later in the day when they have more time after they're done giving out waitlist permits. And they will walk you through lots of different possibilities of what you might choose as your trip. And obviously, the more time you have, the better. So as I said, there's lots of backpacking trips you can do in the Grand Canyon. And on this episode, we're just talking about the one that I did, which happens to be the most popular route. So as I mentioned, we had gotten a campsite for four nights at Mather Campground, but we ended up only using three of those nights. And we had one day to spare if, if, if for some reason we had not gotten a permit until even the following day. We would have still been able to do our hike and be home on a Sunday instead of Saturday. We also stayed in Laughlin, Nevada on the way home and did better at the casinos that night, by the way. We ended up ahead at the blackjack table and went to bed happy. So you might be wondering what you will do for three days before you go backpacking if you're doing the process that I'm describing to get a permit. Well, you're at the Grand Canyon. Most people who visit the park never go backpacking. There's a whole lot to do in the Grand Canyon. There are numerous great hikes. Andy and I hiked the Hermit Trail as sort of a warm-up hike which was really helpful because it helped us think about some of the gear we were bringing and how difficult the uphill would be and allowed us to discard a few items that we had thought about taking to make sure our packs were light coming out of the canyon. We also drove around and checked out different viewpoints. We enjoyed the time at our campground. You can enjoy sunrises and sunsets at the rim. I promise you, you won't be bored if you have three extra days visiting the Grand Canyon. 
As far as gear that you need, standard backpacking gear works pretty well, but let me mention a few things. One is that you definitely need to be prepared for sun exposure. And so that means a wide-brimmed hat and considering clothing choices that you prefer to protect you from the sun and sunblock, of course. I also highly recommend trekking poles for this trip because there are massive elevation changes going down and back up and they can make that much easier on your knees and the rest of your body. As far as uh, protecting your food from animals, you don't need bear cans. Even though I mentioned there are bears in the area, there's not as far as I know in the canyon. I brought a rat sack, which is kind of a chainmail bag to protect your food from rodents. But you don't really need that either because at the official campsites, each campsite has a pole where you can hang your backpack And the poles are designed to keep your pack away from rodents so that squirrels and chipmunks and mice don't get into your food or your other gear. For navigation, I used a book called Hiker Nuts Grand Canyon Companion by Brian Lane. And this book is great for this particular hike or the rim to rim hike, but that's really all it covers. So if you're planning to do some other hike, you'll need a different book. But it does have great coverage of the two most popular backpacking trips in the Grand Canyon. As far as a map goes, at the backcountry center where you get your permit, they will give you a pamphlet called Hiking into Grand Canyon, which is a perfect map for this hike and has both of the main trails you're going to be on and a pretty good layout of the area. So you don't need anything more than that. As far as getting to the Grand Canyon, we drove, as I mentioned, from the Bay Area, which is about a 12-hour drive. So we broke it up into two days each way. If you live in Southern California from LA, it's about seven and a half hours to the Grand Canyon. Or if you are going to fly to the area, fly to Las Vegas or Phoenix or Flagstaff. Flagstaff, Arizona is the closest, but it's probably more expensive to fly there because it's a smaller city and a smaller airport. If you fly into Las Vegas or Phoenix, which are both, I think, between two and a half and three hours from the Grand Canyon, you'll probably get the best price for your flights that you can get. And there are probably shuttles if you don't want to rent a car. You can probably figure out a bus or something like that. I'm not positive on that, but there are a lot of people that come into Vegas and Phoenix and go to the Grand Canyon. And if you rent a car, it's easy to do from a big airport like that. For the actual backpacking trip, as I think I've alluded to, The trip itself is three days and two nights. I would guess that it's about 18 miles when you count the six and a half to seven down, the nine back up, plus about the mile or two along the river itself. As I mentioned, you can take the Grand Canyon shuttle to Yaki Point. You can't park a private car at Yaki Point. So if you have a car or a rental car, as I said, the backcountry office is the place to find easy parking that you can leave for days and then take the Grand Canyon shuttle to Yaki Point. You could, of course, do the trip in reverse, but you'd have to figure out the logistics a little differently. You'd just take the uh, shuttle at the end of the trip rather than at the beginning, or maybe park out on the main road and have a little bit extra walk at the end of the trip. Although you would not be doing it over two days on the uphill if you went up the South Kaibab because there's no water along that trail. Now let's jump into the actual itinerary for the trip. But before we do that, I wanted to play a little audio. The night before Andy and I started the hike itself, we were sitting around our campfire at Mather Campground talking about what we were about to do. All right, so we made it to the Grand Canyon. We are here in Mather Campground. And after two days of trying, we got a permit to go backpacking in the canyon. What do you think it's gonna be like tomorrow? I'm not worried about tomorrow. I'm worried about coming back up. Yeah. We split the uh, way back up in half as far as distance, but it's only a third as far as elevation. So the next day we go up a third of the elevation and half of the mileage. And then the last morning we come up probably another 3,000 feet from Indian Gardens to the Bright Angel Trailhead. So we're going to go down the South Kaibab Trail and up the Bright Angel Trail. At least that's the plan. 
So let's talk about the hike itself. Day one, you start at the top of the South Kaibab Trail. And as I mentioned, that's at Yaki Point. And you're going to be hiking about six and a half to seven miles or 11 or 12 kilometers to Bright Angel Campground. The hike starts at 7,280 feet in elevation above sea level, which is about 2,195 meters and drops over 5,000 feet. So over 1,500 meters. If you're someone who's my age, this will be hard on your knees. So take your time, use trekking poles, learn the proper use of trekking poles. I see a lot of people who don't know how to use them very well. I won't go into detail on trekking pole use on this particular episode, but it's something to look up because I see a lot of people who use them and don't use them properly. And you don't get a lot of benefit from them if you're not using them correctly. It might be obvious, but the hike downhill gets warmer as you go. So bring all the water you need for that day because there's none on the trail. There are mule trains that go up and down the South Kaibab Trail. When you come upon a mule train, stay on the uphill side. It's best to get off the trail itself and give them plenty of room, but do it on the uphill side, particularly if you are on a steep portion of the trail. You don't want to risk falling because you're trying to get out of the way of a mule. And trust me on this, the mules will not care if you are in their way. As far as mule trains go, they are on this trail because it's the main mule route for the supplies that go down to Phantom Ranch, which is a a series of cabins that are at the bottom of the canyon that have a a restaurant and bedding and other things. So it's sort of a step up from camping as far as accommodations. And so there are supplies that go up and down the South Kaibab to supply Phantom Ranch and also... There are other park service buildings down there, like a ranger station that needs supplies. On the way down the South Kaibab Trail, there are a couple of restroom stops. There's one at Cedar Ridge where they have a restroom and another one about two-thirds of the way down. Cedar Ridge is a spot that has a nice view, and it's where you'll probably lose all the day hikers. Most day hikers don't go past Cedar Ridge, so you'll be hiking with quite a few people until you get to Cedar Ridge, and then it thins out after that. When you get down to the river, there's a tunnel in the rock that you go through, and then you go across what's called the Black Bridge to the other side of the Colorado River, which is where the campground is. When you get to Bright Angel Campground, you pick a campsite. They're all numbered, and then you can hang your gear on the posts that I talked about to keep them away from rodents. Once we arrived in Bright Angel Campground and picked a site, Andy and I cleaned up in Bright Angel Creek, which is a creek that runs perpendicular to the Colorado and runs into the Colorado. And we sat down and talked about our day. Well, we did it. We made it to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Yes, we did. So what do you think? It was not as bad as I thought it was going to be. The, the grade on the trail was doable, I thought. Yeah, it's it's graded for all the mule trains to go up and down. So it's a lot of a lot gentler grade than it could be otherwise. And the Colorado River from up above looks really muddy. And down and, below it looks really muddy. Yeah, you get all the way down here and it looks really muddy. Doesn't look any different. Pretty and, cool. That's the name. Yeah. I've mentioned that there's something called uh, Phantom Ranch. And as I mentioned, Phantom Ranch has cabins and it has a restaurant and the snack area and the bar is open to people who are staying at Bright Angel Campground, which is very close to it. So although I wouldn't rely on Phantom Ranch for your meals, um, if you are someone who wants a a lemonade or a beer, that's a great place to go get something like that. Uh, And if you go there at certain hours, they have a snack window available where you can buy snacks. I think you can reserve meals in advance so that you could have a dinner prepared for you there if that's something you want. I don't really know the details on that because it wasn't something that interested me, but uh, that's a possibility, I believe. If you actually want to stay at Phantom Ranch and would prefer to do that instead of backpacking, 
reservations are taken 15 months in advance. So look up Phantom Ranch, look up the reservation system. It's a long way out to try to get a reservation, as you can imagine, because it's just a few small cabins at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And so a lot of people uh, do try to get permission to stay there. After we had set up camp and gotten used to figuring out the area a little bit, Andy and I walked down to a beach along the Colorado River and sat down and enjoyed an afternoon on the bank of the river. So we are here on the bank of the Colorado River, watching bubbles come ashore. (laughs) We don't know where the bubbles came from, but there's these little white bubbles. My theory is that there's a rapids upstream. That's my theory. I'm sticking with that. I liked my idea that it was ice. No, that would have been good if it was ice. The water's kind of cold, but it's not ice. We're looking up at the Black Bridge. Is that what it's called? Black Bridge. That is the bridge of the South Kaibab Trail over the Colorado River going into Phantom Ranch and Bright Angel Campground. It's about 4.30 in the afternoon. It's a beautiful day. The end of a good hike. I should mention that Bright Angel Campground does have real bathrooms with flush toilets, which impressed Andy quite a bit that those were at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. So if that's something you care about, something to know. Day two is Bright Angel Campground to Indian Gardens. And that's about four and a half miles on the Bright Angel Trail. So you cross what's called the Silver Bridge. So we have the Black Bridge coming off the South Kaibab Trail and the Silver Bridge on the Bright Angel Trail. That takes you back across the river. And you go up about 1,300 to 1,500 feet of ascent on the hike to Indian Gardens. So it's about one-third of the total elevation ascent you're going to be doing, but over half of the mileage, which is four and a half of the nine miles to the top of the Bright Angel Trail. This part of the trail follows a creek, so there's pretty good water access. And we arrived at Indian Gardens at lunchtime, and it's the same drill there. You grab a campsite, and you hang your bags from a post to keep them away from animals. You might be asking yourself, well, couldn't you have done the whole way out in one day? Yeah, well, sure, we could have, but why would we want to do that? Uh, We could take our time and enjoy more time in the Grand Canyon by staying at Indian Gardens the second night. Another alternative would be just to stay at Bright Angel two nights, and that could give you a chance to hike up the North Kaibab Trail as a day hike for part of that trail. So if you prefer that, you could stay two or three nights at Bright Angel Campground instead of staying at Indian Gardens. But because of the time frame we had to do the hike, we elected to stay the second night at Indian Gardens. I think if I had thought it through and maybe had more time, maybe I'd stay two nights at Bright Angel and one night at Indian Gardens. But nonetheless, Indian Gardens is a nice spot. And another problem is if you want to hike the entire way out of the canyon on your second day or on all in one go from the bottom, you're definitely going to be experiencing more heat on the the top half of the trail because you're going to have a lot more sun exposure and that's also the steeper part of the trail. So even though it's higher elevation, the part above Indian Gardens is not something I'd really want to do in the afternoon. So for us, it was a nice way to do this hike to do the four and a half miles by lunchtime, enjoy the afternoon at Indian Gardens, and then hike out the next day in the morning. Also, one advantage that we found is we were able to do another day hike once we had set up camp. And we hiked out on the Tonto Plateau to Plateau Point, which is three miles round trip. And I highly recommend this hike. It gives you a real good sense of the uh, ecosystem there on the Tonto Plateau, which, which, as I mentioned, is primarily sagebrush uh, and also brings you to an amazing viewpoint over the inner part of the canyon. We actually looked down and saw a couple river rafting boats coming through. We were told by one guide that the river rafting guides were actually training for the season. So I think it was two boats full of guides and training. But in any event, you have a great view from Plateau Point, And it's a really nice day hike that I recommend doing. All right. Day three of the hike 
is from Indian Gardens to the Bright Angel Trailhead. So finishing up the rest of the way up. And we plan to leave early to beat the heat. And here's a little audio from early that morning before we had started hiking. All right, it's our last morning. We are at Indian Garden packing up. About to head up the hill. We've got 3,000 feet of gain left to go in four and a half miles. Yesterday, we hiked up to Indian Garden from the river, from Bright Angel Campground, which is about a 1,300-foot rise over the same distance, over about four and a half miles. Had a beautiful hike up the canyon yesterday, and then a nice um, afternoon hike out to Plateau Point over the Tonto Plateau after we had set up camp and after we had napped and had lunch. And let's see, last night we got rained on by caterpillars. That was kind of cool. Coming out of the cottonwood tree over our campsite. And we're just about ready to head out. Andy's brushing her teeth. Do you have anything to say? That's a no. And we'll see how it goes this morning. It's only about 6.30 in the morning, so hoping we'll get up to the top before it gets too hot. So we ultimately left at about 7 in the morning, and we made it to the top by about 10.30. So it's about a half day of hiking, if you think about it, as three to four hours of hiking being a half day. And I want to stop for a moment here and mention that lightweight gear certainly became important at this point. I think lightweight gear is most important on longer distance hikes that take weeks rather than hikes that take two or three days, which I know is counterintuitive that you take less gear in a longer trip, but it's on those longer trips where really counting each gram of weight or each ounce of weight is really important because it just weighs you down so much more when you're hiking for longer uh, distances. That said, the Grand Canyon trip is another one where going light can be very important. And Andy and I started out that morning on our third day at the same time as a group of teenagers carrying much heavier gear. And, you know, these are 16, 17 year old boys, very strong, young, and they passed us once, but then they, I think they stopped for a bathroom break and then we passed them and we never saw them again. And that was a surprise to us that we reached the top before they did And I really do attribute that to the lightweight gear that we travel with. And talking about the steep uphill at the end of the hike, this also seems like a good time to mention two of the common trail signs that the Park Service puts up. One is a picture of a hiker on his knees vomiting from heat stroke. I've never actually read what the sign says, but I didn't need to. I understood the point of it. The second sign says, caution, down is optional. Up is mandatory. And that is always important to keep in mind. Whatever you do, you got to plan for making sure you're going to get out of the canyon and you're going to be able to do it safely. So you don't want to be a statistic. Each year, 250 hikers have to be rescued from the Grand Canyon, and there are several deaths. So you need to be prepared and be smart, and you won't end up as a statistic. So I think that covers it. That was our hike in the Grand Canyon, and I hope I've given you some great information so that you can hike this trip, and I hope I've inspired you to want to hike the Grand Canyon. And if you've enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it, or better yet, give us a good review on whichever podcast service you use. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Before we go, I want to remind you of our sponsor, Outdoor Herbivore. Outdoor Herbivore sells delicious backpacking meals with fresh ingredients. The meals have plenty of calories for a hungry hiker and are boil in a bag so you can just add water, seal them, and let them sit for 10 minutes and your dinner is ready. On this trip, Andy and I had one outdoor herbivore meal, I think, before we started the hike, our last night at Mather Campground, and then we ate outdoor herbivore meals both nights on the trail, and Andy raves about them. She couldn't believe how good these meals were, 
compared to some of the backpacking meals that I've subjected her to in the past. As I say, that is something new for her. Backpacking dinners did not used to be a highlight for her. I believe we had the savory lentil simmer. We also had the lemongrass Thai curry. And I can't remember what the third one was, but it was probably one of my two favorites, which I've talked about many times, either the chickpea sesame zeti or the blackened quinoa. In any event, check out Outdoor Herbivore at OutdoorHerbivore.com. Trails Worth Hiking listeners get a 10% discount on their order with the discount code TWH10P, Trails Worth Hiking 10%, for your discount on Outdoor Herbivore backpacking meals. Outdoor Herbivore ships worldwide, so no worries if you're not in the United States. You can still get Outdoor Herbivore backpacking meals. Thanks again to our sponsor, Outdoor Herbivore. Before we talk about our next episode, I want to go back to the question that Neha Zop had about finding luxurious trail accommodations in the United States. And so I've mentioned one of those possibilities already on the show, which is Phantom Ranch in the Grand Canyon. So if Neha's spouse doesn't want to camp at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, they can try to get a spot at Phantom Ranch, and I'm sure they can eventually succeed in that and take advantage of the fact that there is food provided and bedding provided and shelter provided at Phantom Ranch, and that they can even take mules uh, down and up if they wanted to do so without having to walk the entire way. There are similar accommodations in Yosemite National Park in what's called the High Sierra Camps Loop, where there are five different seasonal camps that are put up. They're tent cabins, so they're not hard-sided walls, but they are pretty sturdy canvas cabins that have bedding. They also have a dining hall at each of the the camps. And that's about a 50-mile loop, and you don't have to do the whole loop. You can do parts of it. Um, So that's another option is the High Sierra Camps in Yosemite. There's also one High Sierra Camp in Sequoia National Park called Bear Paw Meadow, which is a great place to hike out to and to give yourself a good jumping-off point uh, for doing some other hikes in the area. We covered that area in way back in episode two when we talked about the High Sierra Trail. So the High Sierra camps at Yosemite and Sequoia are one option. The Phantom Ranch is another option. And I believe in the Pemi Loop episode, which is episode 23, where we covered uh, a hike in New Hampshire, there was a possibility of doing that hike while staying in mountain huts that exist there. And the mountain huts in this area, in the northeast of the United States, are pretty well equipped from what it sounds like, and somewhat similar to the kind of accommodations you might find at some European uh, or other international uh, mountain huts. So that's another option, is mountain huts in the, the northeast of the United States. And then I would say another way to think about this is just to really plan extensive uh, day hiking opportunities that are based around um, nice lodging that you might find in some of the national parks. Most of the national parks have a wide range of lodging from really inexpensive, such as just regular camping, all the way up to fancy lodges like the Awani Hotel in Yosemite, for example. So if you wanted to have luxurious accommodations at most national parks, there's typically one or two high-end options. In Grand Canyon, there's a a lodge called El Toval, I believe, that is a pretty nice old lodge that would be a neat option for high-end accommodations. And you could plan significant day hikes around those accommodations. A couple other thoughts that come to mind is that the Sierra Club maintains some uh, mountain huts in the Sierra Nevada and maybe in other locations too, I'm not sure. And those might be another option for a a fully sheltered type of accommodation that you could do while backcountry hiking. In addition, there are also some former fire lookouts that have been converted to accommodations because a lot of the fire lookout work these days is done through cameras that are set in certain areas or through GPS or other kinds of uh, technology. And so a lot of the fire lookouts, particularly in the West, have been decommissioned, and some of them have been turned into uh, accommodations that you can reserve. That's another possibility for finding a place to stay that might be a little different than camping, and uh, you could do that and get in some great hiking that way. So those are some of my thoughts on backcountry options other than camping. 
And maybe you have other ideas or know of other possibilities for this kind of backcountry hiking in the U.S. It's certainly something that can be done, and you don't always have to bring a tent on your back. So thanks again to Neha for reaching out and raising this question. I think it's a a really good question because a lot of us have loved ones we'd like to hike with who maybe uh, don't think that backcountry camping is the right thing for them, but there are some other options. All right, let's talk about our next episode. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we go to South America for an amazing high elevation adventure of unsurpassed, inspiring natural beauty. We'll encircle a mountain range that has glaciers and lakes and snow-covered peaks and see a mountain whose rainbow of colors seems otherworldly. On this trip, we'll focus on the hiking while our gear and food is carried by pack animals and handled by guides so that we can focus on taking on a trail that goes over passes at more than 17,000 feet in elevation or 5,200 meters. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Ausangate and Rainbow Mountain Trek in the Andes of Peru. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail that you've hiked, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.